Happy 2014 to you, first service of the year, and it's a pleasure to gather with you and to worship with you today. Uh, my name is Pastor Trent. Um, I'm another sinner at the church, also a pastor just like Pastor Ken, um, and we're all needers of grace. We're going to talk a little bit about that today, um, and it's good. My, my wife was giving me a hard time this week. Every good story starts that way, right? Um, Many of you saw the theme for today's sermon on the Facebook page. If you haven't, connect a little plug here. <laughs> if you haven't seen the Facebook page, if you have Facebook, we'd love to have you like our page, and then all the stuff that we put up there shows up on your newsfeed. Anyway, for those of you who saw it today, my wife was one of those people who saw what the theme was, uh, the title of my sermon, halfway through the week. And she says, <laughs> confession, huh? Is that what you're talking about? I said, yep. That's... She brought up the fact that last week... Beth Summers was here and preached. She preached a sermon, uh, which you can listen to on our website. <laughs> Another little shameless plug right there, website, centralitychurch.org, go there. Um, and that was all about love. So it changed the world in 2014 with love. So she was giving me a hard time saying, what's, you know, what's the deal? Like polar opposites in, you know, talk about love one week, then talk about confession the next week, and then I don't know what's up next, but seven deadly sins, maybe, <laughs> maybe we're staying over here. You get to go back and forth a little bit because you're talking about the antidotes to the seven deadly sins as well. Um, not intentional in any way, but it still cracked me up. But yes, today, today we're talking about confession. Uh, if you'd like to read along, please open your Bibles to James chapter 5. Um, direct your digital devices to James chapter 5. I'll see the glow on, on your chin a little bit if you have one of those, and that's cool. As you're turning there, I want, I, I want some feedback, okay? I just want you to holler out some, some answers here. This is a little like audience participation a little bit. We don't usually do this, but this is okay. What's the first word you think of when you hear the word confession? Sin, I heard that. Truth. Truth, and I heard forgiveness. Accountability. What else? I hear laughter from second row. You're going to share the answer? That, what's that? Catholic? Absolutely. I hear, when you hear the word confession, you think of Catholic. Any others? Obedience. Obedience. All right, good. Good, good list of words. Um, I think most of sometimes... Most of our responses tend to be like my wife's. Ooh, confession? <laughs> really? Like, not good. And I get that. I get that. I understand where she's coming from. But before we get too far off track, let's look to the Word and see what it says. Would you stand as I read today's scripture? James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This is the word of the Lord we've been taught to say. 
Thanks be to God. Please have a seat. Now, it can be said that there are really two type, major types of writing that can be found, especially within the New Testament. Um, now, just in case my biblical literature professor is listening to me online, I don't think he is or she is, uh, but this is a little bit of an oversimplification. But for today, we're going to go with it. Two major types of writing in the, in the New Testament. There are books that come across as stories, Somebody went here, somebody did this, Jesus went here, healed these people. There are stories contained within the New Testament. And the other major type of literature that's found, writing that's found in the New Testament, are letters written from a person to a group of people, usually a church. And obviously, the two types of writing come across very differently. You've, you've, you've seen this, you've probably noticed this. Let me give you a couple examples. Here's a story. Okay, a story. In Luke, the disciples want to know how to pray. So they say, there's, there's this narrative, this dialogue happens in Scripture, teach us to pray. And Jesus responds, and he says, when you pray, say, and we have this exchange. And parts of what now has filtered down to us as the Lord's Prayer appear right after that. And Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. In letter form, the writer of Romans says, be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, be faithful in prayer. Okay? He, he's, he's offering instructions, right? Do this, do this, do this. These are, these are good things. These are wise things. These will benefit your life. Another example, in story. In Matthew, uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells a story about a wise and foolish builder. Who remembers who the wise builder was in Jesus' story? Does anyone? He built his house on a rock, but who was it? The wise man, yes, but what did he do? Okay, well, I'll give you the answer. It's okay. Um, all the shy people know. Um, <laughs> Jesus says the one who hears the word and puts it into practice is like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. We remember the story, okay? And, and Jesus is telling us something. He captures our attention with the story. Letter form, I think this comes from one of John's epistles. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's an instruction, right? It's like, if, if this happens, then this. It's a letter. It, it's telling us something. And yet the story of the wise and foolish man uh, captures our heart, and we remember it. It's memorable, and it makes great kids' songs, right? In Sunday school, kids' Sunday school songs. Two different types of writing in the New Testament. And although these two types are, of writing are vastly different, I think they're both critical. They're both critical for our understanding. They're critical for us to understand who God is. Letters tend to instruct us and teach us. Oftentimes they strip down the talk to the essence of something the writer wants to communicate. Do this. Avoid that. Remember this. Watch out for these circumstances. In my mind, they tend to speak to the head. There's stuff to learn, stuff to obey, stuff to follow, instructions. Story has an entirely different function. Story captures the reader, enlivens our imagination. It causes us to identify or differentiate from the character in question and draws us in or pushes us out. It tends to communicate with the heart. It speaks to us at a heart level. One of the most beautiful aspects of Scripture is the variety of the writing 
that is used. So be aware of that as you read and read accordingly and listen accordingly as we head through different parts of talking about confession today. So the whole book of James, including the portion that we just read, is the letter type of writing. It's the letter type of writing. If you look at James 1.1, the author identifies himself as James, and and he lists the, the in, in that style of writing, you wrote who was writing the letter first, and then you wrote to whom they were writing after that. So he identifies himself as James. That's where we get the title of the book, James. And then he identifies the audience, um, the, t- the 12 tribes that are scattered about. He's telling some folks about what it means to be a church, what it means to do life together. And in the midst of it, he talks about a few groups of people, okay? Uh, In the section that we read, he talks about a few groups of people. He talks about people who are in trouble. Quick question. Has anyone here ever been in trouble? Raise your hand. Okay, a few of you, a few honest people here. Uh, Yes, okay, a few of us. Uh, And he talks about people who are happy. Has anyone here ever been happy? Raise your hand. Okay, Uh, great. Uh, he, talks to, he talks to those. I'm, I'm really glad that you've been happy before. That's good. Uh, and he talks about people who've been sick. Have any of you ever been sick? Absolutely. Um, probably all of us, as I sniff a little bit, but I'm, I'm battling that. I, I don't think I'm contagious, but um, absolutely, all of us. He's talking about all of us. We've all been there. But in the midst of it, he's also doing something else, something that's very common in letter type of writing. He's giving us instruction. Specifically, he's told us to do two things, to pray and to sing. If any of you are in trouble, they should pray. If any of you are happy, you should sing songs about it. I think that means we should do a lot more singing, folks. Absolutely. Now, you gotta, sometimes songs don't match your happiness, so you just kind of got to make it up and go. So I'm looking forward to hearing what, what, that, what that generates out of you. But that, that's the point, I think, of the passage, to pray and to sing. So is that it? Can we go home? Some teenagers like, no, we're not, we're, we're, we're not going to pack it up. We could, but before we do, there's one other little thing of instruction that's packed into it, and it's saved for verse 16. After talking about prayer, after talking about the power of prayer, its, it's ability to actually make a difference in what's going to happen, and its ability to heal people, James throws in this phrase, therefore, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Talking about confession a little bit. I'm really glad that we talked about um, the Catholic Church over here. Uh, So we're going to do a quick church history lesson here. And again, professors, I'm sorry. This is oversimplification time, okay? Um, Dave's laughing in the front (laughs) room. What have, I, what have I done? Uh, so out of the apostles, there grew a following of people who wanted to follow Jesus Christ. We read a little bit about the development of those who wanted to follow Christ in the book of Acts. It was largely an underground movement for a while. Um, then one of the Roman emperors, Constantine, made it the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and as what happens when anything involves the government, 
okay, even of the Holy Roman Empire, kind of ballooned with organization um, and structure, so much so that there were some divisions. Sometimes that happens too. Um, divisions and factions, and it split, okay, into the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. It happened around 1050, okay? So we have, then we have two churches. We actually have two popes. There was a pope and an anti-pope for a while, and they just thought it'd be easier if they did life separately, so they did. So we have the Eastern Orthodox, again, oversimplification. I'm really sorry for church history buffs. Eastern Orthodox Church, and we have the Roman Catholic Church, okay? And they, they did their thing for several centuries. Um, then in the 16th century, with Luther's 95 Theses, the Protestant Reformation grows as a grassroots movement, um, and Luther wasn't the only one thinking this way. He kind of just really got the ball rolling when he signed his name and tacked the thing on the door. Um, the Protestant Reformation grows as a grassroots movement by people who have trouble reconciling some of the practices of this Roman Catholic Church with what they're reading in Scripture. Now, reading in Scripture was a new thing. It's a new thing because the Scripture all of a sudden gets printed by the printing press, and it's in the hands of people, and it's a, it's a dangerous thing. Scripture's a dangerous thing. Did you know that? messes with your life. mixes you up a little bit. Dangerous in a good way. Okay, so, so they have trouble reconciling some of the practices, and they say, we, we can't follow in this way any longer. And so we have the Protestant Reformation and a bunch of Protestant churches. So we have the three major strains of Christianity. We have the Eastern Orthodox Church. We have the Roman Catholic Church. We have the Protestant movement as well. And in the Protestant, we have um, lots of denominations that exist today, including the Nazarenes, the Baptists, the Assembly of God, Foursquare Church, Church of God, non-denominational. All of these are subgroups within this major group over here. Of these three, Orthodox, Roman Catholic Church, and Protestant. We, Protestant, are the worst at the instruction of confession. I don't have any research to back that up. I know that's not an opinion I got from anyone else. I have no Barna study to help me out with that one. But, but I believe it. I believe that, that oftentimes we are the worst at confession. And I'd like to change that. I'd like to see that change in my life. I'd like to see that change in our collective life. Let's, let's take a look at all three. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, faithful followers are encouraged to talk with a spiritual guide, to meet with someone and say, this is me. I need to lay my life before you, encouraged to confess their sins. The guides generally avoid formulaic responses. Go, well, you need to do this, you need to do that. Instead, they're, they're tied in to, to what the sin was, to what the confession entailed, and they, and they offer advice, ways to offer, um, offer forgiveness that are meaningful, that, that speak to the sin itself. And that's, that's the function of the spiritual guides in the Orthodox Church. To, they're, 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 they encourage believers to do something intended to help them grow, deepen their understanding. And that's what happens in confession in the Orthodox Church. Within the Roman Catholic 
tradition. Confession is probably most familiar to us, right? How many movies have you seen that involve some sort of confessional scene? You know, the priest walks in one side and the, the confessor walks in another side. There's usually a screen. Um, if there's previous relationship between the two people, something humorous is about to happen, right? Um, and a confessional, though, will have two sides to it. One, one for the priest receiving the confession and one for the person offering the confession. And the dialogue usually starts, Father, forgive me. I have sinned. Are you familiar with this little? It has been so many days since my last confession. Um, And you want to know something that caught me off guard as I was preparing for today. Penance is one of the Catholic Church's seven sacraments. I don't use the word sacraments very often. Um, But the Protestant tradition has maintained two of those sacraments, um, baptism and communion or, or the Eucharist. Um, sacraments are rites or ceremonies designed to bring grace. Sacred moments that have deep significance. And the Catholic Church labels penance or confession as a sacrament, a way to receive grace. I don't know. We, we don't necessarily think of it that way. I don't think most of the time. What a different and good and healthy picture of confession. Which brings me to the Protestants. That's you, that's me, okay? Um, that's, that's the tradition that this church stands in. And I'm a little down on the Protestants today. I don't mean, I don't mean that. Please don't interpret that as I think we should no longer be Protestant. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, What I am saying is this, it's time to seriously listen to these instructions. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You know, confession for us has become this private thing. It's, it's, it's fueled like none other of the, the rugged individualism, right, that's, that's rampant in America, in the, in the Western world, in the Western church even. It's, it, we struggle against that on many levels of our spirituality, that I'm enough. I'm okay. Me and God, we got this. We're taught that even sometimes. It's in, it, sometimes it, it's been in the evangelism plan, the ABCs of salvation, right? What you need to do is you need to accept, you need to believe, and confess your gods to sin. And you can do that right now. Let's bow our heads and pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins. And you confess your sins to God, and, and we're good. It's a personal thing. Me and God, I confess I've done this. I've done this. I've taught this. I've been caught in this. There's an interesting piece of the Protestant Reformation that has contributed to this as well. Um, there's five distinct doctrines that kind of came out of this movement as, as uh, Luther and, his, and his, uh, the, the theologians that were, were helping m- move away and, and find differences between how they, how they wanted to practice their faith and, and where the Roman Catholic Church was. Five distinct doctrines that 
had a fair amount of consensus among the reformers. Um, I don't have time to go through them all, but one of them is called solas Christas, which is Latin for only Christ. The reformers proclaimed that the priest was not necessary to mediate between a person of God. Now, this has come out in a phrase that is a little more familiar maybe to some of us as the priesthood of all believers, a foundational um, piece of theology that came out of the Reformation. Mediation between God and man had always been a function of the priest, largely because they're the ones that read the Scriptures, because no one else could. And now any believer can accomplish this. I can go to God. I can, I can speak to Him. I can hear from Him in the words of Scripture. We all become priests, in effect. And in this adjustment, the sacrament of penance, of necessary, no longer a piece of how we put church together sometimes, and there's some real value in this. I want to I tell you that, that you can connect with God, that the worship of your Lord and Savior should be a deeply personal and beautiful and emotional thing that, that draws you into his presence and captures your imagination and sets you free. That's a beautiful thing. But let me ask this question. What do we do with James? What do we do with, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed? That's a lot. That's a lot to take in. We're going to take a break, okay? Not, not a stretch break, but just kind of a think break, okay? What are we going to do? We're going to turn to story. Story is so much easier, like, we just get to enjoy it. Let's go back to Second Samuel. Okay, the verse that was read, the text that was read just before I began. This is a fairly well-known story. Um, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it tells the story of David. At a time when kings generally go off to war, <laughs> takes the seat in his lazy boy and kicks up the, seat, kicks up the feet and says, I'm going to take it easy. This year, I'm going to take a break. And in these moments of idleness, his eyes wander onto a beautiful woman bathing on her roof. And even though he receives a report that she is married, his power goes to his head. And he sleeps with this woman and gets her pregnant. And to cover his actions, he has her husband, a warrior in his own army, fighting his own battle for his nation, has her husband killed in action so that he can marry her. And in, in this chapter, God sends Nathan to talk to the king, and he tells a little story. There were these two men. One was rich and one was poor. And the traveler came into town to the rich man and needed a meal. And the rich man stole the poor man's lamb for a meal instead of his, taking it out of his own vast resources. What's Nathan doing? He's using a story, <laughs> capturing the heart of David and drawing him in. David is furious with the man in this story. He has to die. Let him, let's go find him. <laughs> let's make him pay four times what he, what he owes. His heart's in it. And Nathan looks him straight in the eye and says, You are that man. Ah! 
Confession hurts sometimes. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Verse 13. This is one type of confession. I'm going to call this the busted confession, right? (laughs) Busted confession. How many parents do we have in the room? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Many of you. All right, great. Uh, Parents are aware of these confessions. Parents are familiar with these confessions. The red-handed, your busted confessions. Little Johnny, you're on the counter, and you're pulling your hand out of the jar. Not to mention there's only one cookie left in the jar, and the counter is riddled with crumbs. So are your cheeks and your chin. Is there something you'd like to say? Uh, (laughs) sorry, Dad. Okay, it happens in real life. You were aware of these. There's more serious red-handed and busted confessions. I have a friend... I have a friend in ministry who tells a story of being called to the district superintendent's office. And the Nazarene Church, the DS, has oversight of the pastors uh, on the district. He presented my friend with a list. The list was a list of websites and was told, these have been pulled from activity on your computer. Have you visited these websites recently? And in a moment of confession, he said yes. He lost his credentials. He lost his job. He had to confess to his family. He had to have counseling. And he is now restored and in ministry and pastoring a church because he chose to confess. These moments happen in real life, in adult life, not just kid life. Busted, red-handed confession. Unfortunately, they can yield a variety of responses. Confessing is one of them. There's also justifying. There's also rationalizing or blaming or denying. I want to tell you that one of those holds power. Confession. I don't usually toot my own horn, um, but I'm kind of an expert at confession. think that's because I mess up a lot, but I'm not sure. Um, But in my experience with confession, I've become convinced that busted confessions are good. They hold power, certainly certainly better than busted denials or busted rationalizations, but there's a better place to be. We'll call this the innocent confession. We live in, within and under a judicial system that states a person is innocent until proven guilty, right? This is a familiar phrase. I think we're even called to confess before we're proven guilty. We're going to call it innocent confession. Have you done this? When's the last time you confessed something that no one knew about? What about when you knew that no one would ever find out. Story time. It's confession time. I know none of you are like this, so this won't hit home. For any of you, this is just a story about me, and I'm thankful that none of you are like this. Uh, There are times when I don't understand what someone has done or a decision they have made, and I allow this negative, belittling, almost soundtrack, play in my head about this person. This happens to me, not you goes something like this. What were they thinking? They're nuts. Why would they do that? 
couldn't they tell what, how that would have affected the rest of the group or me? And I have to tell you this because after you let that soundtrack play for very long, it changes your thoughts about the person that it's playing about. Um, you don't have a, lot, have a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings uh, left for that person. After that happens for uh, half an hour or an hour or a day or a week or a month, you see, I've had to confess to my wife to admit to her that my thoughts have run away with themselves for a day and say, I confess you never would have known this, but I come with all this poison in my soul because of what I've allowed myself to do. And I have to confess. I have to get it out there. This isn't who I want to be. This is not my desire, but this is what has happened, and I'm sorry I confess, and I ask for your forgiveness. I'm telling you there's an openness and a vulnerability in those moments that is so strong and so poignant. It's awesome. It's full of power. It's full of healing. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You know this, but it deserves being said. Confession doesn't absolve you from consequence ever. Sometimes, maybe, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean you don't deserve the consequence, and it may mean that it's still coming. But it simply starts you on a more direct path to healing. One of the things that I hope God does today is speak to your heart about the grace and the healing that's found in confession. Perhaps there are some people you need to call this week. Perhaps they're sitting on your row and you know, you just know, yeah, I need to connect this week with them. Would you take some time and consider that? Who is it I need to talk with? But there's one more piece today. There's one more piece today that I need to talk about, and I'd like to set it up by just sharing a quick update on my life from about three months or so ago. Okay, on October 1st of last year, 2013, uh, my job here at the church shifted significantly. Um, the ministry to which I felt called in July and August of the year 2000 was entrusted to a good friend of mine, Pastor Ken, uh, and my role became pastor of community life. I'd never heard of such a title in my whole life. But I Googled it, and I came up with 42,000 hits. So I guess you didn't make it up, but if he did, he wasn't the only one. Anyway, So Pastor Trent, what does a pastor of community life do? Neil, I'm glad you asked. Thank you, buddy. Uh, uh, basically, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, I've got a few things down. Okay, as far as I can tell, what it means is as the church gathers together, as we become community together, as we become the body of Christ in one place gathered together, 
it's my role to care and to coordinate and to generally serve in whatever way I can whenever that happens. That's my role. Um, primarily, I coordinate the details for, um, for our Sunday morning worship services, and I've also been given the charge to develop a small group ministry. And we're in the process of what is, is becoming a, a new small group ministry in the life of our church. Um, you see, that's one of the things about confession that makes it tricky, is that you have to find the right setting. There's no perfect setting for confession. There's no easy place to confess. When I had that conversation with my wife, it was me and her. That's the only place that that would be appropriate, uh, unless we had a, another couple that we were meeting with intentionally to talk about strengthening our marriage. Um, confession doesn't work in all settings. I think it's safe to say if tonight we called church service, sorry Bruce, uh, and we had a little stool up here and you could come and you can sit and we're going to call it open mic confession night. We're all going to come back. <laughs> Actually, and you get a number when you, draw, when you come in the door, we'll just draw the lottery. Number 26, come on. For, oh, that's me. Uh, number 32, okay. Uh, who would participate? No one. No one. No one wants to confess that setting. It's not the right way. Two things would happen. Two bad outcomes would happen, either one or two. Number one, no one would share or would just hear crickets and we'd all sit in silence together. Bad outcome number two is that people would begin to share and go too far. <laughs> Have you heard of the, uh, the abbreviation TMI? Too much information. Confession isn't meant for everyone. Our deep pain and our desperate failures shouldn't be touted in public. They don't need to be posted on Facebook. They shouldn't be fodder for large numbers of people to hear. But the disturbing reality that we face in this church is that we haven't created an opportunity for safe places to develop where we can confess. And I want that. I think we need that. There's a generation of adults approximately my age and younger, that finds the Christian church and the communities of faith that exist today as thin and inauthentic and plastic. I don't think that's all the church's fault. I think it's partly the fault of generations that are my age and younger. I think we share responsibility. But I'm telling you that in order to reach those people they need to see us broken and weak and confessing in vulnerable, authentic, and appropriate ways. The reality is we can't do that in a worship service. We can't do that in the large setting. I guess a preacher can. <laughs> I've confessed a few things today. Sorry about that. Uh, we're human too. The place is in small and tight and comfortable and committed and unforced and grace-filled groups of trusting people. Small groups aren't easy. They aren't easy to set up. They're not easy to join at first. They're not easy to stay committed to. Anyone busy these days? Yeah, a few of us. 
but when you find a place to rest and to grow and to share and be vulnerable and yes, to confess, it becomes a place of love and joy and peace and healing. And that's what I want for everyone who comes to this place of worship. And that's what I want for everyone who comes to this place of worship. So I'm going to ask you to prepare. Groups are coming. Groups are coming. Over the course of the next couple of months, you'll be hearing about it. We're hoping to launch sometime this spring. We don't have all the details as of yet, but what I can tell you is this. The best small groups sound a lot like James 5. a place to pray for those who are in trouble, a place to sing with those who rejoice, a place to pray for those who are sick, a place to confess our sins to each other and to pray for each other so that we may be healed. Do you have any desire for a place like that? Do you see the inherent value in a place to pray and to sing and to grow and to confess? Can you imagine 12 or 15 groups meeting throughout the ministry area of our church dedicated to this type of experience. It would, like Beth said last week, change the world with love. The praise team is going to come back up and uh, sing us a closing song. I have an image I want to show you before, before I let them do that. This is the picture that was uh, posted on Facebook about the the message this morning. Um, Pastor Ken did all of the work for it. I can't claim credit for any of it. Um, But this picture is not a picture of confession. Praise team can go ahead and come on up. Go ahead and come on up so you guys can start. This picture is not a picture of confession. This is a picture of unconfession. Place of loneliness place of isolation, place of emptiness. And as you look at that picture today, some of you feel that. For you, I want to pray. I want to lift you up. There's other reasons that people feel like this picture. Unconfessed sin is not the only cause. And guess what? You're the only judge for you. (laughs) You don't get to judge for somebody else. But if that's you today, I pray that you would find the strength to follow the instruction in James chapter 5, verse 16 that says, confess your sin to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It's my prayer for you. And as a church, we're going to move in that direction that we can't force it. I'm not, you're not going to go to your small group and <laughs> your leader's going to say, now we all confess. So glad you came. Now it's time to confess. You're going to grow so close to those people that when you feel like this, we have a place for you to go. We have a place for you to share and enjoy the healing that comes from confession. Can I pray for you?